headed out. Hello and welcome to episode 70 of Shoulder to Shoulder Podcast, telling stories from the LAFC community match by match, fan by fan, story by story. It has been a very dark week to be an LAFC fan, but today we are going to be uplifted by being joined from the LAFC Foundation, Miss Alina Baruf. Thank you so much for joining us today. As a good Cuban, I know how to rally cry. Um, <laughs> delighted to be here and thank you so much for having me and thank you so much for at least the last five to ten episodes have at least chipped or charmed on something that the foundation has been doing and I'm forever grateful for all of that so you guys are doing great work and I'm grateful for the storytelling that you're doing both for the club our players but our good work in the community uh, we're happy to do it the foundation is a great great thing and it's uh, definitely a leader amongst the other types of foundations in Los Angeles and amongst other sports companies and teams in the United States. It's totally different, especially because of things like the Youth Leadership Program. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Before we get into all the wonderful things the LAFC Foundation is doing for us here in Los Angeles and for our community as a whole, boys and Alina, we are out of the Rona Rumble. How are you feeling? I, it's, I gotta be honest. I'm a little depressed. Curious to hear. Please tell me something uplifting. Bring some positives away from this for me to take and bring me out of this dark place that I'm in. I'm, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on the match. Were there any bright points in it for you? Your thoughts on a season that will hopefully pick up in a few weeks here and what this means for Conquer Champions and everything else that we have to look forward to in the rest of 2020. Are we really going to do this? Or, or are we just going to continue on with it? Or... Go for it. I, I didn't I, I didn't I didn't know I didn't know what the plan was. <laughs> Go for it. Alina is on. Like, do, Alina... do I finish eating my pita and force it cookie in or should I be available to speak? You guys tell me. Oh no. My, my beautiful mother poured me a glass of wine oh. though. So oh, Ooh, what are you drinking? A Pinot Noir. Um oh. mom's what what coast does it come from? What does the grape uh extend from? She just looked at me like what kind of question is that? It is a fancy grape from yeah. Summer Wonderful, but it's a Pinot Noir. That's feel good uh, juice. Confession, um, I am a certified sommelier level two quartermasters. I worked in fine dining for a number of years. So I geek out on wine. Sorry. Well, I'm literally, I'm literally like sitting next to like a hundred bottles of wine right here as we speak. So uh, my song, cheers to you then. As I'm quaffing this beautiful lemon lime Chardonnay. <laughs> uh, we, we, uh, try and abstain from alcohol during the show it keeps us to a much more family friendly audience here as as we go on but I not drop one f-bomb in the you process. did well i would I'm love to i'm I would love proud to of you my own horn right now i think impressive. that'll change if we talk about the game though <laughs> oh, yeah, no that's not yeah maybe this is a good time for me to exit and just say <laughs> that was tough <laughs> yeah. should we should we just like crickets and then just go straight into the interview and just not even talk about the game at all <laughs> We could, <laughs> but it was, that was, you know, the Sounders was a tough loss. I don't know why this loss hurt me in a weirder way. It was different. The Sounders was tough because we were in such a high from Galaxy, but I understand how that high might've impacted our play with the Sounders. This just seemed out of the ordinary. That was rough guys. And even then I just, I actually, as if I was watching a scary movie, I shone my eyes away. I was like, I can't watch. Yeah. And all I could hear was, it, don't continue not watching, it's bad. <laughs> I will say this, I think you touched on a good point though. Even though it, it felt different, the stakes were higher last year, the Galaxy was a big match. And then the game against Seattle, we fell flat a little bit in the second half. I think it was similar. And what I, I don't like that the national media or the MLS people don't mention at all, like yes, Orlando played well, but they also had two games within the same time span when LAFC had three. And, you know, we're missing players. They're missing some players too. So it seemed like we were gassed from the get-go. And I could tell it was frustrating. I was trying to be understanding. I thought this was, if LAFC could pull it off, it was going to be one of those games where it was going to make them even better, like even another level. Although I think the loss can do that too. I thought if they could defensively hold off that one, you know, go after the penalty save, it can be like a cavalier kind of moment for Bob and the team. And look, we're doing that without Vela. We're playing like our four string striker. Like, look at this, look at us. But all those things are also can be a negative if you don't execute, which they were unable to, you know, they 
they had a defensive lapse at the end. They didn't put goals away. They didn't have as many chances as the other team, but I think they had clearer chances, and it sucks that they, they didn't perform. But one of the things that go away when you're so tired is when you get in front of goal, you have no strength on your shot or your accuracy goes down. So those are my takeaways. It was frustrating for sure to not see them perform as they usually do. I think when a team is that tired, the other team, if it comes out hungrier and has more rest, they're going to look better than they really are. So that's my takeaway. A first half in which we had zero shots is simply unacceptable. And we saw it. The team was absolutely gassed. The press that we had been known for throughout the course of this tournament was just not as effective. Those challenges were not as clinical. The passing was not there. The ability to make those runs and get into space wasn't there. The team was, you could tell, noticeably exhausted. And playing game after game after game with only three days off in between in that oppressive heat and humidity, having to do all of this while living inside this isolation experience where they you know, don't have their families to go home to, they don't have the same sense of camaraderie with their teammates that they're used to and being able to go out and let some steam off. You know, it was an extreme situation to put the team in. And look, we made it further than any of the final four teams from last year made it. We had a good run. But in a cup like this, with these extreme circumstances, anything can happen. And when you don't have those extra two days rest, that takes just a little bit of split second energy off of a player. Um, You know, and especially some of the older, more veteran players that needed that extra split second at the end of the game that didn't have it. And no disrespect to Jordan Harvey in the words of Vince Scully, I'm still with his marching and chowder society. I still think Jordan Harvey is a great human being and a great football player. But under all these circumstances, you know, he had a couple off moments that ultimately at the end of the day cost us a game. There were a lot of moments that other players had prior to that to step up and to close the game out when we had opportunities, whether it was Rossi or Mazowski or whoever it is that had those open shots or the ability. And you can look at a lot of people, not just Jordan Harvey, who had a rough game. You know, Chiqui Palacios, arguably his worst game in an LAFC kit, not himself. You know, I mean, these things are going to happen. Occasionally you're just going to lay an egg, right? Um, You lose games. It happens. Yeah. I think that, especially after the match, you could see a lot of people pointing the finger, trying to find the reason why we lost, whether it was the player or Bob or the substitutions or the lack of rest or the weather or whatever, right? I think at the end of the day, you need to look at our club and you need to look at the circumstances of the tournament, how we played as a whole and you have to find the positives, right? It's sports. We're never going to be the best team all the time. This is why people are passionate sports fans. It's because you have these games that just break your heart and you feel this level of hurt. And it's what makes you want to come back and get rejuvenated when they do well. I'm very proud of of what LAFC was able to do. I think that it shows how dominant we are in our attacking third. I mean, to lose a match in penalties, it's not like we lost six to two. You know what I'm saying? We lost in penalties at the end of the match and uh, set pieces have people score on set pieces all the time, right? Uh, corner kicks and things like that. It, it, it happens. And I think that we should just know that we still have a great team. We have a great coach. We have a great foundation. And I'm not at all discouraged to see what LAFC is going to do when everybody is able to have more rest, be home, and we get to have Carlos back. It's going to make that first championship so much better to have endured all this loss. Selena? My only two cents here were, you know, I'm on the East Coast right now, and I can tell you there's a major difference. And again, let's not just stick it to this, this, or that, but just a silver lining of you know, the guys have been playing in an incredible way, you know, at 10 or 11 p.m. I know this because I have stayed up till one watching these matches to then all of a sudden play at 730. Yes, change in weather. They're against the home market. You know, I, I want to give them that benefit of the doubt that it was a huge change with very little rest. You know, I wish the outcome was different. I also know that there were a lot of things in the game that could have mix it up and made it more difficult. So I'm very hopeful for 
again, coming to, to market, what it will look like and, and how the guys will play when they're back at home, back on their turf, our beautiful green real grass turf. I, I'm very hopeful to see what happens in the next two to three months, regardless of this little blunder. I think there are some great positives to take away from this tournament. Brian Rodriguez is uh, coming out party, right? I mean, he has blossomed in a way that many fans didn't feel he could prior to the start of this tournament. He's had some great assists. His ability to service corners has been fantastic. We've seen him pair up and start linking with other players. We've seen some challenges too, but that was going to happen that they're going to need to work with. Ginella, I think we've seen more from Ginella than we expected going into this tournament. The ever-present versatility of Latif Blessing was on display once again. I think, you know, we saw flashes of greatness from El Munir. And look, even if we lost every other game, we crushed the Galaxy, right? So who cares, <laughs> right? We, I, mean, I, you know, I think the person that actually made the biggest statement throughout the whole tournament was Dejan Djokovic. I think that he is definitely the one who who made a biggest statement because there were a lot of big shoes to fill when we got rid of Walker. And I think that he played very well throughout the tournament. Yeah, he also tried to fill a Twesta's shoes too, though. That's the only problem I think I have there. But uh, I, yeah. I, I digress. I'm sorry. That one, that one play stands out to me, maybe because it's fresh in my mind. But he definitely had some great performances. Yeah. Uh, Tristan Blackman had some great performances in defense as well, too. We saw moments when, oh, <laughs> when uh, you know, he definitely got gassed at the end of some games there, too. I thought Vermeer, a lot of the question marks about Vermeer that people had prior to this tournament were answered. Can he make the big stop? I mean, he stopped the pen versus Nani. I mean, he had some great saves. You know, he showed us that his distribution and all that, you know, was absolutely fantastic. So I think there were a lot of things that we can come home with saying we got to prove a lot of stuff to a lot of people. And there's definitely something to be happy about. And, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, well, we wait for a cup yet again. And I have a couple additional comments. The second save, the deflected save that Ramir was able to put his hand on, that was kind of ridiculous because he was going an entire different way. There are some things that I think, could be improved on this. And this is just me and my opinion. Like, I don't like the zonal marking on corner kicks. I like man marking, but that's just a preference. I think you're, you're more likely to lose marking when it's like that, just because sometimes those balls that are kind of in between, you, you feel like the other defender has. So I don't know if it was a lack of communication. That's the only observation I had there. And what's interesting to me is like, I know that El Munir didn't have a good match against Seattle, but you always want to put a player that's going to play against their former team on. And I wish he would have done that because I feel like El Munir would have, would have shown Orlando that he was better. And the reason that LAFC initiated the trade and giving up Joao was because they wanted him. And yeah. there, there could have been an opportunity there to have him kind of show out and shine in his position. I think in the previous match, he was playing out of position. So it's unfortunate. The result was unfortunate. I appreciate the fight that the team uh, was able to show, but uh, the disappointment was, I think, felt throughout. I definitely had a not-so-happy Friday night, and the next couple of days, was, it was fine. Like, the team, I think they put a stamp on, the, uh, on, on their approach and their performances that they can have when, they're, when everything's clicking for the rest of the league, and everyone's still shooting for them, and they're always going to give us their best game because of it. I mean, and through 85 minutes, we were the best team. You know, and, and ultimately the heat, the humidity, everything that led up to it, just we couldn't hang on for those last final few minutes. And those things are going to happen, right? I mean, I think in the 90 plus games LAFC has played, we've lost less than 20. Those are pretty good numbers for an expansion team and losses are going to happen. That's part of what makes wins ever more beautiful. But speaking of losses, before we transition to the interview portion today, the LAFC pod fam is losing the pod father. And I did want to give a quick shout out to the boys over at Heart of LAFC, Jerry and Joseph. Jerry, the pod father, the man who started the English speaking LAFC podcast community is going to be stepping away. Life is difficult to manage something as, as challenging as a podcast. This takes a lot of time and effort and work outside of recording. And ultimately, with family and his life in San Diego and San Diego loyal, Jerry's going to be stepping away from Heart of LAFC. 
And on behalf of all of us in the pod fam, I just wanted to say thank you, Jerry, for everything you have done for this community. Hats off to you, sir. We would not have this podcasting space if it were not for you. This episode is being recorded on the eve of your final show, which uh, should be recorded tonight and should be out for everyone to listen to later this week. So on behalf of myself and all of us here at Shoulder to Shoulder, thank you so much for everything you have done for LAFC. Thanks, Jerry. Yeah, absolutely, man, Jerry. Thank you very much for everything. And, you know, you're always welcome, right? You're always going to be someone that's welcome to come on shoulder to shoulder anytime you want, bro. So let's get into our guest. You know, we have Alina Baruf from the LAFC Foundation. Alina, thank you very much for taking the time to be part of this interview. You right now are in the East Coast, and I know it's a little late for you, but thank you again for coming on to our show. I'm delighted to be here and just super grateful that uh, you've continued to always kind of shine a light on the foundation and the force for good over at LAFC. So I don't care if it's 11 p.m., 1 a.m., I'm in. I appreciate Gosh, it. if you only know. all our guests were so accommodating, cough, players, cough. We are, are, are certainly <laughs> thankful to have you on today. You do such wonderful work for the community, and we would love to highlight that work. But first, let's highlight you. And we'd like to hear a little bit about the person behind the foundation. We know you grew up in Mexico City, and at some point in time, your life transitioned from DFA to D.C., so perhaps tell us a little bit about what it was like to be a Cuban growing up in Mexico City and then moving to Washington, D.C. Well, first and foremost, being Cuban is a heck of a lot of fun. I think that's one of the greatest gifts that I've gotten from just my background and family. We generally find the silver lining in everything and find a way to create joy in whatever situation, which is very much aligned with LAFC and, and you know, who we are both in the game, on the field and, and outside in the community. You know, I have two older brothers and both of my older brothers, when we moved out here, I think because of their involvement in sports and actually being good at it, which I was not, they very much, I think, were more interested in kind of integrating and, and being more American. I thought that being Latin American and being, you know, Cuban or, or from Mexico was kind of sexier and cooler. So I made a point once I moved out here to, you know, really kind of connect with my mom and make sure that we spent summers in Mexico in a way and consistently keeping up the, the different language skills. So I really enjoyed, you know, being Latina. I think it created a bit of my identity. I went to Catholic schools uh, once we moved to the U.S. and I generally was the only Latina in the schools, but I took great pride in it. And again, loved speaking a different language, loved being able to bring a little bit of flavor or differences to school. Didn't really love that no one wanted to share their lunch with me. Now, as an adult, people would kill to share their quesadillas and things like that, rather than, you know, when I would bring these great tamales and things to school, you know, unless you had the pizza lunchable, you were not really yeah. in love or Dunkaroos. <laughs> I mean, I would have killed for Dunkaroos. It was never allowed in the house. So I think my first major job of babysitting actually was more for the ability to have Dunkaroos and fruit by the foot and other things that I would take from the families and snack on. But again, it was just a constant reminder of being different, but in a very special way and still always feeling really connected to the community that I was a part of and wanting to, you know, make sure that, you know, because I had the capacity to listen in both English and Spanish, could listen to different types of communities and also, you know, respond to do different communities. And I think that's really where kind of my love of philanthropy and community work started. How old were you when you made the transition from Mexico City to Washington, D.C.? So we actually, we were, it's funny that you you mentioned this, because my older brother, or middle brother, has probably the best memory of, of all three siblings. And he called me out for some pretty bad facts uh, two weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> I was also with my mom. I'm like, yeah, right. Well, we were, I was three, right, when I went to Costa Rica, and then maybe five when I was in Philadelphia for a year, and da 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 wrong. So at the age of three, we moved to Costa Rica. We were there for about two and a half years and went to Philadelphia for a very quick stint for about a year. So I got to DC actually when I was about eight or nine. So have a little bit of kind of experience before getting to DC on the East Coast, but very much so my memories, clearly my memory is not as great as my middle brother, but my memories, uh, I would say kick in generally about age nine, age 10, and they're very much DC memories. So I would say that transition from a Latin American, Central American country to the United States is something that certainly translates for a lot of our listeners and a lot of people within the Los Angeles community. What was that experience like for you? You know, I got very lucky. Uh, again, I think because of 
that ability of, of listening and speaking in both languages, but also having been raised in a very kind of education heavy environment, I had the confidence to speak up and feel more confident, I think, about being Latina and not really feeling like, you know, I was part of a marginalized group. Again, I, I always found a way to make it exciting and cool. And it kind of created that identity for me. You know, it, of course, we were a little bit different. We, there were colors in our household that you wouldn't see in different homes. Definitely ate different things that were a little bit more delicious, in my opinion, than some of the other homes. But more than anything, I enjoyed that because I was pretty easygoing about kind of our culture and my mom was a, kind of a really great host and loved having people. I think we were able to draw people to our culture and get excited about it. I think, you know, when I look at myself growing up and my brothers in sports, because they played more traditional American sports, we didn't have as much as of that kind of Latin American push when it came to, you know, what we were supporting and doing. But as we traveled and as we were with different families and friends, I, I always had that notion and importance of, you know, whether it was soccer or rodeo and other, you know, pieces of uh, being Latin American that were always kind of a part of life. I think it was a huge asset. Most importantly, once I got to college, I really had been trained most of my life and I wanted to be a doctor. So a lot of my life was spent, you know, trying to work in hospitals and ERs and, and you know, clinics. But once I got to college, I had the opportunity to actually, through a, a kind of a thesis honors program, build a community initiative on campus. And I think that's what ignited more than anything my my passion to to support others, but also to you know be you know grateful and very uh, kind of proud of where I came from. And that, again, being able to listen to those two voices, so I created a program that supported all of the workers of University of Maryland. So whether you worked in the cafeterias or you were a janitor, how could I make sure that this group actually received the same health benefits, pharmaceutical benefits that a lot of the students on campus got? So that healthy workers program, I think was the one thing that immediately started to create that push into the future and what I would actually start doing with both my career, free time, passion, it kind of all evolved into one major, you know, mission, you know, for myself and, and you know, for, kind of the future that I wanted to create when it came to, you know, what do I want to see nationally in the U.S.? How do I want to see these communities integrate and grow? So from there, that's really what skyrocketed everything in kind of my current life. But it was very much uh, catalyzed by kind of the love of the community that I came from and understanding that the two languages that I have both access to speak and to listen to were ones that maybe others didn't always have that kind of dual language ability and that I could actually be a voice or a speaker, you know, for, for that crowd. How do you feel that you were able to connect your culture at home and your upbringing with what your surroundings or what the DC society was in order to achieve some of these things that you were able to implement to the program at early on in your career or, you know, when you were in college? You know, I think a big piece of it was both of my parents got to the U.S. in a bit of different ways. My dad's family very much kind of did more of the struggle to, you know, the U.S. So my dad was a scholarship kid really from middle school, high school and beyond. And he really wanted to make sure that, you know, us as children had less and less of that experience. And oddly enough, I was the one kid that actually wanted that experience when I got to college and really valued that, hey, look, you had to work really hard to get to where you are. And I don't want to have any freebies or this or that. I, I want to have that similar experience because I recognize that, you know, every kid doesn't have the opportunity to go to college or have parents that either one are supportive because there are a lot of kids in our disadvantaged communities that have supportive parents, but if they don't have the vocabulary or the ability to understand how to navigate the next steps of college and beyond, it creates a, a kind of divide and difficulty. So I realized that I had the opportunity to see through both lenses. I could connect with those that might not have the same support at home to kind of push and drive them beyond that. And I recognized that I was very lucky to be the kind of spokesperson Latina, if you will, at school. You know, we're on Zoom, so you can tell. I look white, obviously I have articulate English and articulate Spanish. And I think a lot of schools and jobs valued that, maybe for the wrong reasons, 
but I think that it created a great advantage for me to then help other groups and provide that perspective so that I could play a bigger role in really helping them get to the next step in life. So while you were at college at University of Maryland, I believe you started an advocacy program. Is that the program that you just spoke to as far as trying to develop those rights for workers? How did mm -hmm. you get involved in that? When I went to University of Maryland, I was in the honors program. And in the honors program and the gemstone program, you have to complete a project while on campus that supports both campus and your future learning. So the Healthy Workers Program, which is the one that I developed, was based off of that. And again, tying in things that were important to me. I always worked on campus at our student health clinic, but at the same time, I was also the kid that didn't matter what cafeteria I walked into or if I walked into the bathroom and I saw someone, if someone was working and I knew that whether they were Latina or not, I would make a point if they were Latino or Latina to speak in Spanish or at least acknowledge that we could communicate in that language. Or if they were from another culture and a different language I didn't know, I would still find a way to communicate or acknowledge that I appreciated their support, that I appreciated how hard they were working to make our lives as students better and, and complete. And, you know, started to ask questions, you know, well, where do you get your health support from? Where uh, are you getting your pharmaceuticals? And the more that I realized that you know, either they were schlepping somewhere, you know, 30, 40 miles away or didn't have access at all. We had the opportunity on this campus that's connected to also several hospitals, University of Maryland and, and kind of the medical structure. Well, heck, if students get, you know, reduced pharmaceuticals and, and prices on medicines and we have, you know, rather than copies, $10 fees to go see a doctor, whether it's uh, psychological or for women, you know, gynecological and pap smears and things like that. Why couldn't they also have that advantage knowing that they were on campus and we had doctors that wanted to provide that support? So little by little was able to then make it clear that, hey, there are people that need this additional support and hey, we have the services to do it. So how can we create a pipeline where we can make that happen? And it was to me probably one of the most special things that I've done because you see the differences in just education and what people do and don't know about their health human hygiene, anything like that. So in fighting for the Latinx community there in college, your life then transitions out to Los Angeles, where you start working with the Young Eisner Scholars. So describe that transition from Washington, D.C. and Maryland out to Los Angeles. What motivated you to come out to the West Coast, Best Coast? And uh, what, <laughs> what brought you to start working you know, with, the, uh, with YES? First, because I love to talk, we'll give you one little fun fact. One of the hardest things about moving to the West Coast was the Nationals, the Washington Nationals cap is the big W. And my brothers are massive, massive baseball fans, all about the Nats. I agree, not a huge Nats fan. I'm all Dodgers. When Bryce Harper went to the Phillies and screwed it all up, trust me, I was super happy. I went to see <laughs> Bryce throw his first pitch. His first pitch was actually at the Dodgers stadium. And I was at that game. Sorry, Philly, you guys are in trouble. <laughs> but I would see people with the hat of like, yeah, DC, you know, go Nats and look at me and W, West Coast. No, no. So uh -huh. I mean, that was, I always felt like kind of an idiot, but at the same time was super <laughs> excited and proud to at least see all the Nats hats or at least would snap pictures and send them to my brothers. So transition to the West Coast was tough, but exciting. I decided my senior year, you know what? medical school is going to actually be a pretty big, big bill. I was going to have to take about just over $200,000 in loans. Got lucky that while I was at UMD, because of being in state and a few scholarships and kind of working throughout the year, and of course, some support from family, I was going to graduate without any debt. And then all of a sudden, I was going to sign up for $200,000 of debt. Uh, maybe not what I wanted to do. Which is funny because I'd spent 10 years with these horse blinders on to, to really pursue medicine and, and to go that route. But because of my family's involvement and, and especially my mom, her connection to a lot of the international orgs here in DC, Organization of American States, the IMF, the World Bank, all of those really are at the heart of DC. I made a point to apply and try to get involved with those as my summer internships when I was in college. So still in health, but at the same time, still keeping up the English-Spanish skills in a more, I guess, a better well-rounded way. If you only are speaking Spanish in the ER, that vocabulary is going to be what sticks with you. And, you know, while knowing el riñón, you know, the kidney or whatever is important, you needed to have other Spanish words in order to, to really excel. And I knew that there was 
a power in, in truly being fully fluent in both languages, not just conversational Spanish or, you know, gringo Spanish as we like to call it, but really having a, a full Spanish vocab and being able to speak to government, politics, health, whatever it is. So that's where I got lucky with those internships. And when I decided medical school might not be the way for me, I took a job with Pan American Health Organization, which was my first job right out of college, which seemed very cool. It's a branch like, of WHO, like part of the Pan Am, like the airline Pan Am? So, well, Pan Am actually provided all the flights for Bajo, OEA, and others. My grandfather was actually kind of in that world. But Pan American Health Organization is the branch of World Health, so WHO, which apparently we're not a part of anymore. <laughs> oh, we'll leave that for another conversation. No, no. Another conversation. But we were very much a part of it, and I kind of went into work on the staff health side, so really supporting staff while they were traveling to different countries and different crises. And what I thought would be very cool, especially because it does have six weeks of vacation, again, at 21, 22, very cool. Once you started working, you know, it was just, it was boring. It was not me. It was not exciting. I, I couldn't see the fruits of my labor. I, I didn't really know where the results were going, but I was at a loss, you know, like here I was, I was eschewing for medical school. I always wanted to be a doctor, knew now maybe that wasn't the route. This cool international piece, mm, bureaucratic, uh, maybe not the right route. And I just had this kind of urge or sense that I needed to take a risk or, or jump. And I had a good friend in LA that needed a roommate. And I said, why not? So I hate to break it to you. There was no real exciting reason to go to LA other than I'm 22 and this is the time to do something crazy and different and try it. And it just so happened I got very damn lucky in the process. So I get to LA and, you know, my family kind of freaks out, you know, that we have all these kind of connections or network in on the East coast. And one of the big things I've always recognized is that, you know, your degree in college or where you went to high school or whatever scholarships you have, no matter where you're coming from, at the end of the day, it's still your network and who, you know, that's going to help propel you then beyond college, second job, third job, fourth yeah. job. That's and, the Rich Orozco school of networking, yeah. I believe. Exactly. <laughs> I agree with it. No, usually, I mean, if you have a good network, your next job is really a formality, that interview. You're basically not messing up so that colleagues of the person that's recommended you validate that, yeah, that person's cool. Yep, precisely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So my mom sends out SOSs you know, to her entire network and no one bites. No one knows anyone in LA, you know, LA was still 10 years ago, like a little too cool for the East coast, which has changed drastically. Um, we have so many New Yorkers, New Jerseyers, et cetera, now coming. But my uncle responded and said, well, my best friend from Harvard, although I haven't seen him in a decade plus and his wife live out there, I'll just, you know, connect Alina on a note and they can go have dinner. And of course, I went, I had dinner. Who wouldn't say yes to a free dinner when you're 22 and have just moved to a new state? And this couple in LA, the wife had actually been involved with creating one of the major all-girls schools in LA, the Archer School for Girls. And while we were having dinner, we chatted about it. And you know, I applauded her for great work. I so loved that I went to an all-girl high school. I felt that it had a lot to do with me growing into who I was, as, you know, confidence, whatever it is. But you know, I didn't care about what I wore in front of guys. I cared about being more right than the dudes. And I think that was a big piece of what all girls school did. But that one conversation led her to then have a meeting the next day with someone that had been in kind of the entertainment and uh, kind of legal industry in LA, not really wanting to had kind of started a nonprofit that supported kids in, in Lenox School District and understood that he wasn't totally sure how to grow it or expand it or where to take it. And she just name dropped me the next day. I had no idea. I get an email from some random guy saying, hey, I want to interview you tomorrow. I hear, you know, you know something about my program. I knew nothing, but I Googled the <laughs> heck out of it. And next thing you know, I go to have coffee at this guy's house and he tells me about his program. And I immediately told him what I thought he could do better, um, especially working with, you know, underserved Latino kids, you know, getting them a scholarship to Harvard, Westlake, Brentwood, Archer, all of these premier schools was not the free ticket to paradise. Um, there was a lot more 
that would have to be done to make sure that their experience was complete and full and really had a return on impact and investment, you know, for everyone involved. But most importantly for those kids, you know, the last thing you want is to support these kids and then put them in an environment where they'd be jaded or, or upset or, you know, not actually integrating. I might've been one of the first people that had ever told him, you know, you need to do better. You need to do X, Y, Z. And luckily he just looked at me and said, okay, well, when can you start? <laughs> you clearly have some gusto, you know, what you're, you know, what makes sense here and you know how to stand up for it. So I don't know what I'm doing. This is not a community that where I speak kind of the dual languages. So, you know, go ahead and take the reins, which was terrifying, but at the same time, probably the coolest opportunity you could ever ask for being a 23, 24 year old. I was allowed to get involved in program development, work one-on-one -on -one with students, and then also really get involved in fundraising for something that I really believed in. So it never, it didn't feel like work. It just felt natural to advocate on behalf of these kids. And then for these kids act as that kind of secondary parent or median that would then help them kind of get all the way or expel from there. I imagine it was very helpful for the kids in Lenox to see someone that can, you know, speaks, understands, and is successful, and also relatively young, right? To, yeah. to be able to identify with. Yep. And I, I recognize that I knew that, you know, my, my boss at the time or who had founded it, you know, he was a 60 some, you know, Jewish entertainment lawyer. And while he was cool, you know, to these kids, he was something that was exciting and different. He wasn't going to be the person that helped make their parents understand why taking a full scholarship at Tufts was more important than going to, you know, UC Dominguez Hills or uh, a community college because it's nearby, you can still babysit, you can still help at home, whatever it is. So I was not only cool for the kids, but I also spent years developing trust with their parents so that when these big picture decisions came about, they knew that I was truly thinking of the entire family and the child when it came to what are the best next steps. You know, if this move to the East Coast happens, what does that look like for the family? Do you have all the support that you need? And just really kind of being on the ground when it came to those types of conversations. Yeah, it's amazing. I remember, you know, and we'll get into this a little bit later when we talk about the uh, last year's foundation gala, but, you know, I remember uh, you had spoken about that you still have those same struggles with the kids that come from Brisi and trying to get the parents to, to buy in and understand, you know, the end goal and how this benefits the children that are part of the Brisi program and the uh, youth leadership program. So it's, it's, it's just, it's something that if you had never heard, you would never realize that those are hurdles that you have to get through in order to, to give these, these young adults a better opportunity at life. And I know we'll talk a little bit about, you know, COVID and programming later, but one of the coolest moments, at least in our post-COVID programming, was the YLP drive-up graduation. And you see those parents with those kids, and there's just this sense of pride and wonderment and just total joy. And God, you could never take that feeling away from me. Yep. All hair standing up on arm. <laughs> uh, but moments where you just know, like, my gosh, being able to support these kids, but in a way where they know that it's a whole family experience and the families don't feel like they are not a part of the success, but a part of it, regardless of where they are with education or language skills or in life, man, that's one heck of a gift. So let's go ahead and transition to your work with LAFC. So you work with the Young Eisner Scholars. You're able to scale that program from locally here in Los Angeles to a nationwide program. After you'd gone nationwide with it, what was the motivation to then transition to a new line of work? And how did that end up becoming LAFC? That's an easy answer. A couple of my, well, a couple. LAFC has 32 owners. <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty broad, but a few of those owners were donors of yes. And I had worked with one of our major owners, their wives on two separate projects and occasions. And several of our owners were again, donors of, of yes. And they said, look, we're doing something different at LAFC. And, you know, at that point, I had received uh, grants from some of the other, you know, teams and of course other major funders and orgs in California and LA. But it was always understood that if I got money from certain teams or from certain companies, you know, I don't want to just just you know stick uh, sports into this in the past. But 
I knew who was there to write a check and wanted to take a picture versus who was there to write a check and actually be really involved. And generally with the sports teams, because again, no fault of them, but because seasons were long, there was a lot to do. It's hard to get the players, you know, out and about and involved and engaged in something that's really high impact or long-term. I knew that I was really darn lucky to get checks from the teams and I would need to curate, you know, one day event or opportunity or experience that would be great for our kids and great for the players, but at the same time, wasn't going to have that long-term motion that I knew, especially for disadvantaged communities is really the best way to support or the best way to create impact. So when I started having conversations about LAFC, the first request was just to maybe consult a little bit and, and provide some input as to how LAFC could build a foundation or a community initiative that was different from other sports teams. How could it be built in a way that still spoke to this grassroots relationship building and grassroots community impact that it had been building already for, for many years? And I'll be honest, I was so, uh, jaded's not the right word, but I was so aware of how I had worked with other teams that part of me just felt like, mm, you know, happy to provide advice, happy to support, but I'm just not really sure this would ever be a role that I could really be successful in, both for LAFC and for myself. Maybe skeptical? I bet skeptical would be a great word. Yep. So I was skeptical until the very smart decision of putting Alina and Richard Roscoe in a room happened. Uh, <laughs> and Obligatory that man does, Richard Roscoe shout yep. out. That man, and, that man works wonders on everybody. Everybody. <laughs> and I told him, I said, look, Rich, I... I don't really work well with kind of the brand optics. And again, I'm actually that jerk that for a long time said, you know, screw marketing. There were all these TED talks about marketing with nonprofits and that the marketing line always became a massive budget line that one should always be wary of. Don't fund the nonprofit with a big marketing tag because it just means they're printing fancy brochures and they put a lot of money into their storytelling, but that money doesn't always reflect in actual programmatic support. So I drank that Kool-Aid. I totally drank the Kool-Aid. I thought marketing was the devil. I was just interested in creating the best programs and people seeing the success of those programs and then coming to me. Very small-minded way to think now that I'm a part of LAFC and have very much learned from the world of Rich and others that it wasn't a phony selling on our part we really were going to show in a big way who we are and what we were doing and that it was authentic and genuine. And yes, the support and people came running and it wasn't not authentic. It wasn't ingenuous. It wasn't all of these things that I assumed it would be based off of what my experience was with marketing in the past. So I realized there was a way to have grassroots storytelling and kind of not marketing, but what Rich now calls branding community that actually can propel a story. It can propel programs. It can propel fundraising and engagement in a way that, you know, my small mind just couldn't even process at the time. But that one sit down with Rich and just the quick one, two, three of, no, Alina, we're not, we're not selling tickets right now. We're selling an identity, a feeling, a community, a, a sense of self. And people are buying into that. They're not buying into an actual, you know, seat, Section 128, this or that. Although, of course, we see a lot of kits with, with the seats and, and, and connections behind them. But the moment that he said that, I knew that I actually might be working with something different, bigger than myself and my knowledge and stance and something that was actually exciting and genuine. And I knew that I could trust Rich. I could trust what he was doing and that I wasn't signing up for something that was going to be fake. All aboard the Orozco hype train. Right. Yeah, right. So, Rich, so, don't get your head too high right now. <laughs> uh, I, I was going to say that um, I, I can understand skepticism because a lot of this marketing and branding, usually there is no follow through or, or execution, right? So one can become jaded uh, or skeptical when a lot of that happens, especially when a new team or new company is announced and then the product doesn't fulfill that promise. So do you recall any words exactly that Rich said that made you feel that trust? Uh, because it sounds like that meeting, going into it, you went in feeling a certain way and coming out of it, you felt differently. I don't think anything new, but that was the first time I heard street by street, block by block, one by one. And that is not something that you hear in my world unless someone is truly intentional about committing to that and making it happen. And 
where we started, yes, Lenox School District is one of the smallest school districts in the LA area. And that's how we started. It was, you know, street by street, block by block, one by one. I knew every horchata, whatever vendor that you could know. I used to buy tamales through a fence, you know, uh, while working on, on, you know, these school campuses. And, you know, once we got kind of smarter about what we were doing and how we could support, then we went into Southside Chicago and we were in Harlem. And then we went to Boone, North Carolina, you know, a totally rural, almost all white area but with that same attitude. I didn't even know that I was working street by street, block by block, one by one, until Rich shared that with me. And I realized this is the mission that I've been connected to and involved with since day one. That individual support and really being in the trenches and on the ground, that's how you create real relationships. That's how you create trust. And that's how you create the opportunity to really have an impact, a long-term impact in your community and who you're with. So for our listeners that don't really know, can you kind of give us an idea of what are some of the community events that LAFC Foundation participates in and how they get involved in the community? Absolutely. So obviously right now, a lot of our events and initiatives have revolved around our response to COVID. We haven't had a choice, but to listen again to the community and what needs to, to happen. Big picture, I would say the biggest areas where we've really put money and oil into, I guess, in the last three years, we've been very dedicated to our futsal court initiative, very dedicated to the support we've received from the University of Phoenix to create a Falcon program that really involves kids in schools and very much connected. And, you know, as everyone knows, I'm so proud of the YLP program, which was originally created by Rich and then was kind of adopted by LAFC. And then from there, you know, great trickle effects of, of supporting health and well-being and kind of this food desert issue or food access issue that kind of comes around being around low-income neighborhoods. For those of you who may not know either, YLP stands for Youth Leadership Program, which is a program that LAFC takes young youth leaders in high school and they... Uh, put them in training roles with other younger middle school students, and they teach them things about leadership skills and coaching and 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 things like that. If YLP I may, it's um, all about accountability. The oh, YLP program. If anyone is interested in hearing more about the YLP program, you can just scroll down in your favorite podcast format there to see all episodes of Shoulder to Shoulder podcast. Look up Quinn. Look up Quinn. <laughs> scroll back yeah. to our episodes with the folks at the Brazil Foundation, Luke O'Quinn, and the wonderful leaders that told us some very, very passionate, moving stories from the youth leaders. And then obviously we had some great conversations with the directors themselves as well, too. Well worth a listen. Some of my favorite episodes we've ever put together of this show, just to just to wave our own little shoulder to shoulder flag there for a second. But I'm so sorry for interrupting you for shameless self-promotion. Not, not shameless at all. I was delighted when uh, I knew that, you know, Brzee was on the podcast. And of course, I listened to them from start to finish without a single moment of, of being separated. So I love hearing their story. They're such an incredible community org. So many intentional and thoughtful programs that have come from all the work that they've done. But so, so what, back to your point, you were talking about uh, recent events with COVID-19 and how some some those are now kind of the pressing issues, you know, you're catering to the community and what they need right now. And with COVID-19, can you talk on some of the recent things that the foundation has been doing and how we still, because COVID doesn't seem to have an end date in sight, that what are some of the things we can also continue to do to uh, participate in? Yep. So uh, right when COVID hit, our community relations department and the foundation decided to work together in response to it. Maybe it was a self-preserving thing of we needed both very small departments. Each were kind of departments of one until recently where we each had an additional support person. But we knew that it had to be the club and foundation working together to both activate the stadium and just activate and engage our network in a way that was really meaningful. 
So we created the Black and Gold Community Relief Fund and in no effort to shamelessly also still talk about the podcast and, and kind of great episodes that you've had. Episode 64, when you talk to Dweez, he mentions going and giving blood at one of the first Black and Gold Relief Fund blood drives. Look so, at you dropping episode numbers. Oh. You know, I, you know I, I got you guys done. I did a little research. I've, I've been a fan for a while. <laughs> so, you know, to me, that was one of the coolest things. Um, I felt, you know, as much as COVID has been a just drag and it continues to be a drag, I can say that the one beautiful silver lining is that while play hasn't been in action, I think the foundation and community relations Department of LAFC have started to shine and people more and more know how involved we are, how much we care and how interested we've been in consistently having a presence every week. So it's allowed us to kind of shine a little bit brighter. It's also because players can't really appear and do things as much. And it's allowed a little bit more of that authenticity of who we are in that storytelling. So key things that we knew we had to focus on was how can we activate the stadium in a way that is completely safe and would never deter, you know, whatever that footprint of COVID, et cetera, was in the stadium, wouldn't deter the stadium being able to get back on its feet for both play and also other events. Smartest way to do that is to accept that I'm not a professional in public health. So how can I partner with organizations that are public health professionals? So that's how we want first started the blood drive initiative. We partnered with the American Red Cross to do drives at the stadium. We've had five blood drives to date, and uh, those drives have actually raised about 296 units of blood, which actually supports and has saved the lives of 888 people. A pretty perfect number, 888. So that was a kind of the first step that we took and allowed us to start assessing just safety and protocols and how to activate Musa Stadium. Step two then was working and partnering with both Supervisor Mark Ridley Thomas's office as well as CLA and our local farmers that we're going to have farmers markets that were closing. How can we one, support the local economy and community by making sure that these farmers still are able to sell their produce. It doesn't go to waste. And we ensure that our disadvantaged communities are not just stuck eating canned goods for the next five months. When all of this started, I don't think any of us thought it would be more than a month, but even just a month on canned goods was a pretty dismal experience or thought to, to think about. So we knew, all right, how can we get fresh fruits, vegetables, berries, potatoes, avocados, things like that to these families as well. But again, still ensure that our farmers and those that had South LA farmers markets were still supported. Those initiatives also supported some of our local you know, businesses like the South LA uh, Cafe, which we've continued to partner with and also do more giveaways with. That's a shout um, out to them. My wife grew up like a few blocks from there. Dude, massive shout out. Mm -hmm. We did a great grocery giveaway last week couldn't think of a lovelier group that was most aligned with LAFC. Again, grassroots, all community, just all about heart and soul going out and supporting people out there. So that has been a, a wonderful partnership. But we were able to accomplish about nine veggie box giveaways with this partnership with CLA, about 1,200 families per week, including LAFC part-time staff that needed to be supported because, of course, with no match days and you know other large events, you know, not just, you know, the foundation has a gala at the stadium, but many other nonprofits have galas or conventions or consortiums and symposiums. So how could we help support kind of that group to make sure that, you know, they were still having access and support and felt like they're a part of LAFC? With the Salvation Army, we did one very massive giveaway that was a bit larger scale. And from there now have partnered with the American Heart Association and LAUSD to do eight weeks of kind of veggie box initiatives and giveaways that would happen at uh, Manual Arts, which is the high school that's about five, maybe six blocks away from the stadium. And it's also one of the schools that we originally supported with PPE mask giveaway. They had a lot of reduced numbers at the beginning of COVID when it came to volunteers supporting their lunch you know, giveaway program. So by providing gloves and masks, we were able to ensure they had the volunteers to then continue 
those, you know, food grab and go programs for all the students and families in the neighborhood. These are some wonderful, wonderful things. If any of our listeners are touched and inspired by this, how can they get involved with you now and how can they help out in the immediacy? And perhaps maybe if they're too timid to be involved during this pandemic, what can they do in the future to help you out? So we have on LAFC's site, there is the Black and Gold Community Fund page. I think one of the important things that I'd like to mention is that the fund was created both to engage our LAFC community, but also to give back to it. So the fund is very much still active. We have a emergency funding campaign going on. So if you are part of the Black and Gold community and you're struggling at the moment, please go in and apply for support and funding from the LAFC fund. We still have a budget to continue supporting this effort. And we are providing support in three very intentional ways so that one, we can ensure we know where the money is going, but two, also have more of an individual relationship with each of the applicants. So we've been providing support through utility payoffs, rent support, and then also grocery support. So through grocery gift cards, in particular through Target, again, just making sure that the work that we're doing also highlights our partners that have still been doing great things in the community whether their initiatives aligned with what the club is doing or not. And so that's the Black and Gold community, and that can be found at, what, LAFC.com? Or? Yes. So if you head over to LAFC, it's the Black and Gold Community Relief Fund. and mm-hmm, Community Relief Fund, and we have a nice little landing page. If you go through LAFC and go through the community and events, easy to find. Brilliant. Well, I know all your blood drive dates and everything else in between. Wonderful. I know all three of us have donated to it. And so if you are out there in the community and able to chip in, please do so. And if you're out there in the community and you need a helping hand, here is a way for you to get in contact with hopefully some very well needed relief. So it's a wonderful thing to bring to the community. We are, are so blessed to have that. Thank you so much for pioneering that. I believe, too, that the donations that were raised during the e-tournament games with Remy, the proceeds went to the relief fund also, right? Yep. And can you also talk about the, you know, any of the those events like that and getting funding from the community, especially in a time like this, and also talk about the Dash app, which is the interface you use to also try and raise funds? One, I just want to give a big thank you to everyone in the community that supported our initiatives, whether it was donating blood volunteering for a veggie drive, providing, you know, donations for the fund. We also did a virtual 5K and, you know, Black and Gold Running Club was a huge support in in getting that news out. So really a big thank you to everyone. Your support has gone a really long way. All right. So then from there, a little bit of Dash App is actually a really exciting thing to talk about. Like I had a love-hate relationship with Dash App the first year and a half because I so wanted to integrate it immediately when I got to LEFC because I thought, well, how cool. And, you know, we have this like very sexy app and in-app integration, you know, with our IT techs is like the coolest thing you can do. But I also recognized that for a foundation that was brand spanking new, a huge part of what I needed to do and kind of creating this identity as a single, I was just one person really until October of this year when I got the wonderful and amazing James Bradley to join the team. I thought, well, how can I get people to know me? You know, I don't just want to be the person that knows our ownership or our board or our sponsors. I need to be on the ground. So I initiated the LEFC foundation table in section 135 doing silent auctions the medieval way. So medieval that if the printer broke down, I would hand write on a little LEFC postcard, you know, what the numbers were and I probably have so many numbers of fans saved in my phone. And again, pre-apologize to all of you if I've misspoken your name, texted the wrong number, whatever it is, but it created the best and unique opportunity. So every game get to know people face-to-face. Didn't matter how flustered I was or, you know, how chaotic it was or exciting based off of how well we were doing or what was going on, not so well in the game. It really allowed me to create a group of foundation fans, you know, a force for good army. And it almost became impossible to kick off and integrate the Dash app because I had so many people that loved coming up and doing the by hand medieval silent auction and playing the game of revisiting me at the 50 minute mark, 55, 60, 70, that when we did the Dash app for the first two times, 
my dash auction items got nowhere near as many hits as the in-person items on the table. So a COVID silver lining is that COVID created the opportunity for us to create a new online auction platform that actually was effective and engaged folks without competing with what we were doing in the stadium. So now we're using Dash app far more frequently and, and weekly really at, since we've kicked up the BNG fund to auction off all of our items and do it in a way where it's connected to social media, connected to a lot of those folks that were already involved in what we were doing and show more you know, visuals of the items, where they came from, where they were assigned, who was involved. It's been a very cool ad now that we have the space to do it without kind of conflicting with that in-person game auction. And there's actually some really cool stuff on there. There was a set of the LAFC themed beats. There was the Gensler model signed by some of the players uh, and they had a jersey. I saw that the most recent auction is a jersey signed by all the uh, players from this year. Um, So, I mean, there are, there are some great items, you know, those beats ones, man, like those beats ones became really Shout out to Nick Cronin, <laughs> who was one of our, has always been an OG foundation table guy, but Nick really kind of went above and beyond. We have very few of those, slash, I don't think we have any left, but I think now that we're going back to market, we might have more, so you might hey. see one two there if, if we get lucky. But what we're looking to do now that the players are back is potentially doing some really fun little things. Maybe potentially some players doing your personalized voicemail greeting or something else that's engaging and fun for both them and and for others. Game-worn stuff? Yes. Game-worn from Orlando, of course. Uh, That's, you know, been COVID quarantined, of course. So everyone... (laughs) (laughs) The jerseys were tested is what I heard. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> that uh, nasal test for the jersey. Right. <laughs> Some of those socks with the, the wing on it. Oh, dude. Yeah, um, I want those new, though. Please, can you give those new? <laughs> I'll wash them. Yeah. I'll wash them. I don't care. That's fine. I'll I mean, the, the good thing about this community is that it's like any little thing, it could, there's going to be somebody who wants it. You know, I think the, the honestly, I think the best gift, though, that is there at the foundation table every game is the experience with Ken McNook and being yep. able to go and fly with Ollie after the match. I've yet to do it. I'm, I want to do it when my sons are a little bit older so that we can all kind of like do a, a good memory uh, of it. But it's definitely one of the ones that I look forward to getting one day. Good I had Ken to ask for oh, a yeah. lot of favors to make that happen. As you all know, our grass is sacred. And, you know, getting out onto the field pre and post-match is a hard task. But luckily, you know, the club really has rallied around, you know, what the foundation is doing and also what we're doing in the community. But our Falcon Scholars Program, you know, a little kind of note or, I guess, uh, applause to add for there. Now with COVID, everything that we were doing with LAUSD for Falcon Scholars was going to be creating actually the Bank of Cal as an official field study experience for LAUSD students. So it would be part of their curriculum, coming to the stadium, doing a tour, doing a Falcon flight and having an assignment pre and post the event that touched STEM or humanities or, you know, environmental sustainability was a big part of what we were really pushing this year. What's been very cool, though, is we've actually been working to and will in about a month be able to share a virtual program. So all LAUSD middle school students will be able to actually complete their academic years using actual assignments based off of our Falcon Scholars program. So looking at, you know, speed, both of the birds, speed of the ball, angles, what sound looks like in the stadium. So really touching on engineering and other pieces as well as storytelling and journalism. That's so cool. That's that's awesome. I would love to see that donation table make a trip to the north end for just like one (laughs) game, maybe. It's going to get wet over there, though. Well, that was my thing. I'm like, I don't know if I can really bring those items and then have a beer shower. And, you know, I, well, I don't if know you're how, up at the bar, how, you'll be fine. There's lots of places up there. <laughs> Although you can, can make in- a lot of sales. I agree. Well, so this is how my, we might integrate Dash app within game, right? So us walking around with the item, protecting it, you know, completely, but still being able to share that it's on Dash app and it's integrated in the LAFC app so that folks can also you know, bid and, and kind of move forward from there. 
Well, it's a wonderful, wonderful program. And thank you so much for giving us your time today. Thank you so much for being here with us. Before we let you go, we do have one final question for you. It is uh, the name of the show, and it's beautiful how many different answers we seem to get to it. But we are very curious. What does shoulder to shoulder mean to you? Well, I love this question because I actually think we touched on it right when we started. But I think for me, the key thing was also what I heard in that room with Rich that first day. So you guys, you guys are now the extension of my rich life, right? But it is, I think, family, follow through, and it's creating joy. And I think that's the key thing. You know, how can you follow through and always stick to doing what you say you're going to do? How can you make sure that you're creating a family in the process? Let's have a hell of a lot of fun in the process too, right? Let's have some joy. Let's really have it be a part of, you know, building our passion in our community. So I'm fully street by street, block by block, one by one, shoulder to shoulder. Well, again, thank you. Thank you so much for taking your time to join us today, even from three time zones away. We're sorry if we kept you up late, but we are most appreciative of your time. Again, anyone at LAFC Foundation would be where you would find any social media outlet that you can support. Please, 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 if you have a chance to donate to the Black and Gold Community Relief Fund, please do so. And if you are out there and you are in need of help with utilities, rent, or groceries, and COVID has presented you in a situation where you cannot resolve that yourself, the LAFC Foundation is here to help you. And thank you so much for that. Thank you for the time and for making sure that the story is also out about how we can support and what we love, love, love doing. Uh, we know the LAFC community is having a rough week. And so hearing that they can have a hand up would, would mean a lot to a lot of people. And to just piggyback on what Jonathan said, you know, for anyone in our community that wants to come on our show and reach out, uh, we're at LAFC S2S on all of your social media platforms. Or Alina, if you know anyone that you feel has a great story, whether it's someone in the YLP program or someone in the LAFC community that you think that they have a story that you want the community to have access to to hear send them our way and we'll get everybody on you know this that's what this this podcast is all about is trying to show everybody in the community all the little pieces that make this black and gold community as great as it is it shines thanks to you so i'm super grateful to be on the podcast and super grateful for the storytelling and just everything that you're doing to get LAFC, our community, and those that, you know, really need the love more than anything out in the spotlight. This is a lot of fun, P.S. Whether I'm well, three hours ahead or not, I had a blast. <laughs> so when, uh, when everything comes back to normal, we'll have to have you in studio and we'll have you, you know, it might be a good idea to have you come on, you know, once or twice a season to kind of give an update onto what the uh, LAFC Foundation is doing. To tease some of that stuff that's going to be on the table, maybe. Uh. <laughs> oh, Yes. I will all start sending you like private little DMs or emails as to what the next auction item will be and what it looks like. Uh, wow. yeah. awesome. We're cutting this out, by the way. Yes, exactly. I'm joking. Totally. You're always welcome here. So, you know, anything you want to announce at any time, just let us know too. If you're not able to come on, we'll definitely be your messengers to make sure that the community understands and knows what's available for them. We are always happy to be a conduit for information to get out there for the fans. And normally we end our episodes with the lovely dulcet tones of sticks, but because we've had such a rough week as LAFC fans, I thought I might mix it up a little bit this week. And uh, with the gracious permission of my co-hosts here, I would love to replace our outro music this week with something beautiful that has touched my life this week. Uh, as many of you know, I am an Arsenal fan. Uh, and oh, I made a little get out of here. No, stop, I made stop. I made I made a small small wager with a member oh, of our LAFC okay. pod fam. Oh, I know exactly uh, what this is. Okay, and to Mr. Christian Philly Philemon of Defenders of the Bank, bet me that my <laughs> Arsenal is going to lose in the FA Cup. Philly. And so, uh, we made a small wager that the loser would have to sing the "I'm a Little Teapot" song. And so for our listening pleasure today, for those of you who need a slight uplift from the depression that football has brought us this week, today's show is going to close with the dulcet tones of Mr. Christian Philly Philemon singing, I'm a little teapot. And with that, take us home, Philly. <laughs>